Good job, Tabitha. Well, if you have your Bible, oh yeah, if you have your Bible this morning, you might know I brought my planner up instead of my sermon notes. That's okay. I can preach a planner. If you have your Bibles open to Monday's the 26th, that's tomorrow. And I want you to know that whatever you do on the 26th, tomorrow is going to follow you on the 27th, which is Tuesday. And there could be a chance that Judgment Day will come Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. So you better make sure that whatever you do tomorrow on Monday doesn't follow you through the rest of the week. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Bring my sermon up here. I don't know how I did that. Thank you, dear. Did you learn that lesson? All right. Yes. This was last week's sermon. I guess we're going to have to do it again. Hey, uh, Barb Christie wanted me to let you know and remind you that uh, this coming Thursday night uh, is um, for our Halloween guild for the kids in the nursery. They always wear their costumes and they parade around Bible study, you know, and exercise the place. And, but anyway, so it'll always have a little party for them. So have them come and enjoy it. It'll be a, it'll be a great time when we all get together with that. So, and also, I forgot to put on the prayer list, pray for Phil. Uh, he called this morning. He's not here. He really hurt his back, and he can hardly get out of bed. So we need to pray for him that, that he'll get, uh, get feeling better quickly. But if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn to the book of Proverbs chapter 13. You know, we've been talking a lot about riches, spiritual riches versus worldly riches, and we've been talking about how it all kind of lays out in the Bible. And yet, obviously, if you're paying attention at all, uh, the book of Proverbs is one book that will make you rich. The book of Proverbs is probably the richest book in the Bible for getting knowledge and truth. And the Bible talks about the true riches. And the true riches is understanding, be able to understand things in life and see things in life and understand why they are the way they are. You know, we all get into problems. We all have things we struggle with. Some of us make a bigger mess in life than others, but we all make our messes. Really, the key to getting out of whatever mess you're in is simply realizing how you got into that mess, realizing how you can get out of that mess, and then putting the truth and the knowledge of the Word of God, the true riches. You see, the problem is what gets us in a mess, and this is not, you know, a, a criticism of anybody because we've all, we've all done it, but what gets us in the mess is we start making investments in the wrong things the riches of this world. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about possessions and things, relationships, things that we think and we hold to a real high value, but from a Bible standpoint, really don't have much of a value. And then what happens is that they cause the problems we have in our life and uh, they compound those problems and pretty soon our life is, you know, in a mess one way or the other, uh, in a big way or a small way or a medium way. But the only answer to that is knowledge and truth, and that comes from the Word of God. And today we're going to move on in chapter 13 of the book of Proverbs. And last week we saw how in a practical way uh, the book of Proverbs is basically right where we live. I mean, right where we live. And uh, we we talked about learning the Bible. And, And again, nothing in our life will be as rewarding as learning the Word of God. It'll always bring with it everything that we need uh, to, uh, to really put those things in our life that we need. We, yet we saw it has to be done God's way. The problem is that in everything in life, uh, we want to do it our way. And nothing in our life will be as rewarding as learning the Word of God. But you've got to do it God's way. 
you know, in the world of religion. There's thousands of ways, thousands of ideas, thousands of thoughts and books on theology and teaching on the Bible. And honestly, 99.999% of it is absolutely worthless. The world is full of heretical teachings that will send a man to hell or at the very least will confuse him and defeat him all of his life. And it all comes down to the same source. Learning the Bible man's way or learning the Bible God's way. Bible calls it rightly dividing the word of truth. When you rightly divide it the right way, then you'll learn it the way God wants you to learn it. When you wrongly divide it, then you're going to do it man's way and you're going to come up with a lot of issues and a lot of problems when it comes to the Bible. You know, learning the Bible and understanding salvation are, are, have much in common. I don't know if you ever thought about it. Both are taught by man that there's many different ways to get to heaven, just like there's many different ways to learn the Bible. Uh, I, you've talked to people, and you know, I've heard people talk about the fact that, you know, well, there's many roads that they all lead to heaven. No, the Bible says straight is the gate and narrow is the way, see? Now, see, there's man's idea versus God's idea. People say, well, you know what? You can, all kinds of ways that you can get to heaven. No, no, no. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the only way. And if a man try to climb up any other way, he's the thief and a robber. And yet when it comes to the Bible, you find the same thing. All kinds of ideas on learning the Bible. Man, you can get every religion out there on a planet and everybody's got their own way of teaching it and their own way of concept. I, I ask the question all the time, why is there so many churches out there who don't believe the same thing? Because all of them but one is wrong. I'm not necessarily talking about this one. I'm talking about there's one true way to learn the Bible. There's one right way to get it. Just like there's only one right way to go to heaven. And you'll spend your whole life working your way to heaven, trying to get this, trying to do that, and you'll spend your whole life going here with the Bible, trying to learn this with the Bible, reading this book with the Bible. At the end of the day, both salvation and the Word of God both come back to one common ground. You have to do it God's way. Now today, we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 13, verses 6, 7, and 8. Just three short verses. Three short verses that won't take me long at all to go through them. We can get on with a hayride. I'll be done in four or five hours, and you'll have a chance to get a bite to eat before you get there. But here's what it says in verse 6, 7, and 8. It says, Righteousness keepeth him that is upright in the way, but wickedness overthroweth the sinner. It says, There is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. There is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. The ransom of a man's life are his riches, but the poor heareth not rebuke. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you today. And Lord, this is a simple message. It's not hard to comprehend. And maybe there's someone here today that needs exactly what we're going to talk about. Because all through life, we hear there's so many ways to heaven. We hear there's so many different ideas about the Bible. And that is so true in the worldly sense. But we know when we come back to your way of thinking and your way of looking at things, we know there's only one way, and that's God's way. Bible says there's many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Many areas that a man will come up with in theology or dealing with people or the Bible or churches or preaching and sermons. But yet when it comes back to the Bible, there's only one way to get the truth of God, and that's God's way. Help us today. 
Thank you for the truth that we do have. Thank you, Father, for all that you've given us here and for the great host of people who love you, love the Word of God, and for the lives that have been changed, for the men and women whose lives have been, have been turned around by the things of God. And we'll thank you now and praise you in Jesus' name for our sake we ask it. Amen. Now let's begin to look at this. The verse 6 says, Righteousness keepeth him that is upright in the way, but the wicked overthroweth the sinner. Now that's a great verse. It's a great simple verse, but it's so profound in its concept and its content. You know, we, we know the a book of Proverbs is about two men. It's about a wise man and about a foolish man. The whole book of Proverbs is built around that. In reality, the whole Bible is built around that. You find that concept of a wise man and a foolish man all the way through the Word of God. You know why? Because that's true in life. In life, you're going to find the wise man who does it God's way, and you're going to find the foolish man who does it the world's way. You know, when you come back and look at that concept in a historical sense, that's the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Nation of Israel, some of them were wise because they stayed with the Word of God. Some of them were foolish because they left the Word of God. You know, in a practical sense, it's true of of people that we're around today. A wise man would indicate somebody that has found the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. They found the wisdom of God. They're focused in on it. A foolish man would represent someone or a woman who who has never been saved, that they're living in the world and doing the things that they want to do. And yet there's another application kind of off of that because I found saved people who were saved and on their way to heaven who are some of the biggest fools you've ever seen in life. So we see that there's a lot of ways that we can look at it. So keep that in mind today as we kind of come through here. And uh, I want to kind of explain both. Now, in verse 6, we see that the first part, righteousness keepeth the upright in the way. Now, this will definitely be a picture of a saved man for you and for me. And the last part, the sinner that gets overthrown, that'll be an unsaved man. So we're going to start with it like that, and then we'll kind of move back and forth on it as we look at some of the different areas. You know, one of the heresies of man's way of learning the Bible is the false teaching that you can lose your salvation after you're saved. All of my life, I've dealt with people, and I'm sure you have too if you've ever kind of worked with people. You'll find people who are of the persuasion that once you get saved, that you can actually do something to lose that salvation that God will give it to you, but then God will take it back. And, and I've heard all the stories on it, you know, most, all their arguments, and honestly, most of them are very, pretty lame. I've heard to explain, somebody try to argue with somebody who thought they could lose their salvation and simply say, well, you know what? Salvation is a gift. And if God took the gift back, then that would make God an Indian giver. Well, you know what? God doesn't care about being an Indian giver. He'd take it back if he wanted to. You think God cares about, you know, cross your heart and hope to die, tell the truth? He doesn't care. He's not a boy. He, he doesn't cross his finger and be a boy scout and scout's honor. He's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. So that's kind of lame. It really is. I've heard people try to explain it in a, in a number of different ways. And yet, I just simply look at it like I look at everything in the Bible, very simply, very plainly. Now, let me just say, and tune your ears now so you don't hear the wrong thing, because some of your ears are turned backwards. I can see it this morning. Technically speaking, and I put emphasis on technically speaking, technically speaking, you could lose your salvation if 
It was your righteousness that got you saved in the first place. I mean, honestly, if it was your righteousness that got you saved in the first place, then I would agree with that person that you could do something stupid and you could lose it because your salvation was based on a faulty righteousness to begin with. But here's how it works. You see, when you got saved, it wasn't your righteousness that saved you. It was God's righteousness that saved you. Now, that changes the whole picture. That changes the whole perspective. Bible says in Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us by the washing of regeneration and by renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now, if you have your Bible there and you're kind of a new Christian, I want to explain just something to you in passing here. You see the word renew in the Holy Ghost? People have a tough time with that. Some people are going to say, well, what does that mean when I got saved that we got renewed in the Holy Ghost? I don't, I don't understand that. It simply means this. Well, a long time ago with Adam and Eve in the garden, they had it. And you know, when Adam sinned, sin passed upon all men. And from Adam on, Genesis chapter 3, we all lost it. But when you got saved, God saves you and he renews the Holy Spirit of God in you that Adam had, but Adam lost. That's how it is. Nothing, nothing big, but you want to put that in there. Now, you and I, we have no righteousness. And any righteousness that we do have, Isaiah 64, 6 says, is as filthy rags in the sight of God, not much good. And see, I just keep it simple. I mean, I don't get theological about it. I don't get deep with it. I think too many people try to get too deep with things in the Bible that are so simplistic in their origin anyhow. I just look at it from a natural standpoint in a basic way. Hey, the idea that you and I don't deserve salvation in the first place is 100% clear. You all agree with that? Is there anybody here that thinks you deserve to go to heaven this morning? Well, if you do, don't answer because you don't. The idea that you and I don't deserve salvation in the first place is 100% true. Then, the fact that even though we did not deserve it in the first place, and then God gave it to us anyhow, and then God's going to take it away because we did something now that we don't deserve it anymore, when we never deserved it to begin with, when he gave it to us in the first place. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Now, as a Christian, you and me, you're going to fail in life. I want you to know that. We are going to fail in life. Some bigger than others, but we're all going to fail. I failed. You'll fail. We'll all fail. It's hard to stand in a pulpit for a preacher and castigate people for where they're at in life when you're honest with yourself because we all fail and we're all sinners. We will have our struggles. Everybody does. And here's the key. When we do struggle and we do fail, and we will, it's God's righteousness that we didn't deserve and we never will deserve that keeps us when we can't keep it ourselves. David said in Psalm chapter 51, verse 12, in his great prayer of getting right with God, he says, God, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. David knew it wasn't his salvation. It was God's. God gave it to him. A great example is in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. 
Before they fell, the Bible says they were naked and they were not ashamed. It was a beautiful place. Didn't need clothes. I mean, it was the ultimate nudist camp, man. You didn't need clothes, no cold weather, no sweaters, no long underwear, no jackets. Just absolutely perfect. But when they sinned in Genesis chapter 3, that all changed. And now Adam and Eve know that they're naked. And they know that that nakedness is before God. So what did they do? They ran out, found the nearest Sears and Roebuck fig tree, and sewed aprons together of fig leaves and covered their nakedness. Now, when God came down and met with them, you know what he said? He said, "Uh uh-uh, that's not going to work. You were once in innocence, and now you're in sin. And now you know right from wrong, and you know you're naked. And you're trying to cover your nakedness by the things that you've done. The fig trees that you found, the leaves that you sewed together is a picture of man's unrighteousness and him trying to do something, make something, work something to cover his nakedness. God says that won't do. And for time and eternity, the fig tree in the Bible has been a picture of self-righteousness. They were now lost. They were now sinners. They were now outside of God's grace. But they were naked, and they thought, hey, we'll cover that nakedness by doing something and making it and covering it. That's what every 20, 21st century modern Christian does today. They're naked in their sins, but they go to church, they buy a Bible, they sing songs, they get in the choir, they do all kinds of things to cover their nakedness, but you know what? Didn't work with Adam and Eve, won't work for them. You know what God did? God come down, the Bible says... God come down there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, and he made them coats of skin. Now, you know what God did to cover their nakedness? He did the same thing with them he did with you. He killed something innocent by shedding its blood to cover their nakedness. And when you were naked and your self-righteousness wouldn't do it, he sent down his son, Innocence, who died on the cross and shed his blood, and his righteousness will cover your unrighteousness. Yes, I'm preaching now. (laughs) Say, well, I don't like that kind of talk. Well, you're going to like it less before you get through, so hang on. Now, in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, when he talks about that, you know what he says? He talks about salvation, Israel, and he makes the reference back to Adam and Eve. You know what he calls those coats of skin? He calls them garments of salvation. That's God's righteousness. That's man's way, fig leaves, versus God's way. Coats of skin, garments of righteousness. Now look at the second part of that verse. But the wicked... But wickedness overthroweth the sinner. Now, that's one of the greatest statements in all of the Bible. And it simply says that if you're an unsaved person here this morning, there's not a thing you can do to help yourself. You can try to get better. If you're an alcoholic, you can go to Alcoholics Anonymous and you can can quit drinking. If you're into drugs, you can go to Narcotics Anonymous and you can get out of drugs. 
and you think you've accomplished something, and you have. But at the end of your life, you're still in your own righteousness, and you may be sober for the next 40 years of your life and never touch drugs again, but when you die in your own righteousness, you're going to split hell wide open. Your righteousness won't get it done. And wickedness will overthrow you every time. An unsaved person has absolutely no power to overcome sin in his life because his righteousness is no good. He can get religion. He can straighten up. He can clean up his life. He can do and say all the right things. But his problem is none of those things. His problem is he's a sinner. And he needs God's power through God's righteousness and he'll never be able to get that. You'll never be able to get that on your own. Now, the great example is, if you have your Bibles this morning or look on with somebody that does, is Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible today, you come and see me afterwards and I'll get you one. We'll bill you at the end of the month. You're only $2,000. We'll get it to you. Have time payments. Two payments of $1,000 each. One in the morning and one in the afternoon. Now look at that. Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. Here's what it says. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through the dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Now that's a picture of a man who is demon-possessed, as we like to call it. He has an unclean spirit. And the Bible says that it goes out of this man. Now look at verse 44. And he saith, here's the spirit speaking. I will return unto my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. Now, in a, in a historical sense, he's talking about the nation of Israel. But this, in a practical sense, is a picture of every unsaved man and every unsaved woman. And the thing that I want you to see is you have no control over whenever the devil influences you. He'll do it as his will. He'll come and he'll go. And this man had absolutely no power over it. And yet, look at verse 44. This guy, he cleans up his life. He gets a broom and he sweeps up the beer cans, the cigarette butts, the, the needles, and all of the trash in his life. And he, he says, man, that looks pretty good. And then it says he garnishes it. Now, garnish in the Bible will always have a religious context. Now he starts to put crucifixes on the wall, pictures of Jesus over here. And he, he starts to put holly up here and, and, and he puts the, all these things, gets a statue of Mary over here and, gets a, and he wants to cover all the bases. So he gets one of Buddha on this side and he gets, he gets everything in his life. He's now swept up his life. He's, he's hanged all of the garnishings of the religions of life. But I want you to know the Bible says in spite of that, he's still empty. No Holy Spirit. You see, you can have all the religion in the world. You can have all the religious things in the world. You can clean up your life and do whatever you want to do. But until you get filled with the Holy Spirit of God and you get God's righteousness, you're not going anywhere. Now the Bible says that the, his word, he's worse now before he was because before he was just an old unsaved sinner demon-possessed. Now he's an unsaved religious demon-possessed man. That's worse. Now look at verse 7 back to Proverbs. 
There is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. There is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. Now, in Luke chapter 16, verses 10 and 11, you have a story of the true riches. And I've always wondered and marveled at the fact that when the true riches is found in the Bible, it's found in Luke chapter, yes, here it comes, 1611. Because if you want the true riches, you're only going to get it out of a 1611. You have a story of, of an unfaithful steward. Now, doctrinally, again, historically, I know this is Israel. But from a practical standpoint, you and me. And he says in verse 10, 11, He that is faithful in that which least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in least is unjust also in much. Now, that's a great verse. That verse there is the greatest verse on the word dysfunction. Somebody who can't do it in the little things of life will never do it in the big things of life. And certainly when it comes to a spiritual thing, people who can't discipline themselves to get the Bible the right way will never get it in a great way. That's what he's saying. And look at verse 11. If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you your trust, the true witches? He's saying you can't even take care of the things in the world where you live. You can't even take care of the basic common things of life in this world. How in the world am I ever going to give you the true riches? You know, there's a reason why a lot of people never learn the Bible. They're so dysfunctional in their physical life, they can't ever possibly get to the spiritual side of getting anything out of the Bible. Now, the definitive passage on this making himself rich yet hath nothing and having poor and yet having great riches is found in Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31. So I want you to turn over there. Just a couple pages up. Or not a couple pages up, a couple verses up. Now this is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The Bible says in verse 19 that there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. Now, we see a contrast here. Here is our original wise man and a foolish man talked about in Proverbs. Here's the original postscript for that verse back there in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 7. Here is a classic example of a rich man and Lazarus, a rich man who has everything and a poor man who has nothing as far as the world's concerned. He lays at the rich man's gate full of sores. And he doesn't get Obamacare. He doesn't get a handout. Nobody's on the street giving him a hot dog and a thing of water. No, no, no. In his case, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which he fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. That's close to Obamacare or what it's probably going to get you to. Now, as you look at that from a worldly standpoint, one of them's got everything, the other one certainly has nothing. But watch. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, the rich man, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off, lies in the bosom. He said, I don't believe in hell. Tell it to the rich man. 
I've dealt with Jehovah Witnesses all my life, and I, I, they would say, well, we don't believe in hell. And I'd say, really? i say, well, I know lots of Jehovah Witnesses that believe in hell. Really? Where? I said, everyone had died without Jesus Christ. They believe it. Too late. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that may he dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember thou, thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and now art tormented. And besides all this, uh, there's a great golf fix. See, there's golf courses in hell. <laughs> that they would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren. You know what? The rich man never gave a flip about his five brothers while he had all that he had. And now that he's lost everything in his hell, suddenly now he's a soul winner. Suddenly now he wants his, somebody to go back and tell his five brothers. And Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophet. My point is this. Don't wait till it's too late before you do what's right. And Abraham saith unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, nay, father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, they, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither way be persuaded they're one from the dead. Now, that's a good thing to put into practical. I bet you there's people in hell right now that you know, that you were friends with, that you're unsaved, and they know that you're lost, and they want, if they could tell it, I, I bet you hell is filled with requests being filled out to send somebody back to tell you about this place. And you know what he says? He says, look, they got the preachers, and they got the Word of God, and if they don't believe the preaching of the Word of God, they're not going to believe somebody coming back. You got these people all the time that go into seances and thinking you can contact Aunt Edna or somebody that died went on before. You're out of your mind. If you're dead and you're saved, you're in heaven. If you're dead and lost, you're in hell and you ain't having any communication until the Lord comes back. Rip you off and take your money. Now, in a New, Ep- New Testament application, a couple of things here. We know that the rich man, uh, yet he's rich, yet he has nothing. That's the concept. Last week, I showed you the contrast of two churches. Revelation 3, 7, a church of the open door that had the Bible and had great power. And in Revelation 3, 20, the church of the closed door, the Laodicean church period, the one we're living in, they have no Bible. They have huge complexes as all the riches in the world and possessions, and yet they say they have need of nothing. In reality, they have nothing. The Bible says they're blind. They can't see a thing. In Christianity today, this is not a crock against the Roman Catholic Church. If you, if you, it's a true statement. Uh, back in the '60s and the '70s, there was a man by the name of Avro Manhattan, and he wrote a series of books. He was probably the world's foremost authority on the Roman Catholic Church. He's dead now, but his books uh, out of print long ago. You can find them, but they're very expensive. I happen to have a set of them that I, I hang on to and cherish. Uh, we have a couple of them back there that uh, are back in print. But uh, uh, he wrote a book called Vatican Billions. And it was a book dedicated to showing the net worth of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, this was in the 1970s. And he said in the 1970s, the net worth of the Roman Catholic Church was over 200 billion, billion with a B, billion dollars. Their 
their interest and assets alone in uh, all the things that they own. They own, the, all the, you own parts of all the steel company. They own part of the Miller Brewing Company. They own all kinds of things. And he says, you add to that the art, the gold, the artifacts, the property, the manuscripts. Well, the Vatican Library alone probably is a treasure trove where those manuscripts are probably worth million dollars apiece. They're filled with it. You, there's more security in a Vatican Library than there is in Washington where our, where our Declaration of Independence is. And yet the true church of Jesus Christ during that time period, while they were collecting all of that junk, were the poorest people on the planet, as it seemed. They only had one thing, and that was the Bible. While the Roman Catholic Church was amazing, amassing great wealth, they had the Word of God. And from a worldly perspective, they look at that and you say, wow, look at the gold basilica, look at this, look at that. And you look at this old Waldensian over here, and all he's got is a dog-eared Bible with no shoes on his feet and a ragged coat. And from the world's perspective, you say, now that's the rich one, that's the poor one. From God's perspective, that's the rich one, that's the poor one. All depends on your perspective. You better get God's perspective on it. And also it's true in a Christian's life. Great possession, money, cars, homes, RVs, bank accounts. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things in balance. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. I'm not against these things. But a man who amasses all the possessions of his life, and, 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 and there's no lasting satisfaction in those things. If you had a hundred millions of dollars in your bank account and everything you want, you know what you'd do at night? You'd think you'd sleep good. You wouldn't. You'd stay awake tonight worrying that somebody was going to steal it. You'd sit there with your mind going, man, how am I going to make the right investment to keep it? And then you had all of these things, all these toys and everything, you stay there saying, wow, now I got a maintenance at all. <laughs> Clinton, Hillary Clinton, I love her. <clears throat> She's my buddy. <clears throat> she made the statement a while back and I thought it was hilarious and everybody just went over their head. She says, you know what? They were talking about, you know, all of her finance and everything and she said, actual statement. She said, you know what? When Bill left office of the presidency, we were all, we were broke. We were down to our last two or three million dollars. <laughs> How many here want to be broke just like that? <clears throat> yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> See, that's the world. That's the world. Two or three million dollars and you think you're broke? Now, seriously, two or three million dollars and you think you're almost broke? What it must take for you to think you're rich. Now, the Bible filled with stories of people that illustrate this. Great principles and great truth. But I could list a whole bunch of them. But I'll tell you, since we're talking about righteousness and God's righteousness, I'll just tell you about the greatest one in the Bible. The greatest one in the Bible who had everything and was rich and left it all for you and for me with Jesus Christ. You know what's wrong with us today as Christians? All of us. <clears throat> you know why some of us don't serve God at all, don't do anything for God, and yet you're on your way to heaven? I'll tell you why. <clears throat> you do not understand what he gave up for your salvation. Your salvation means nothing to you because you see no value on it because you don't see what he gave up for you to have it. Oh, there was a day when he left the splendor of heaven. I told you before, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, when you lay that foundation when you get saved, you're supposed to build gold, silver, precious stones. That's how you learn. 
When you learn who he is, gold, the deity of Christ, then you can't help but understand the silver redemption that was paid for you, what it cost. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Romans 5 8, But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hey, he was equal with God, yet he took on the form of a servant. Hey, he was born in a stable. He had no place to come. Everybody in this room was born in a better place than the Lord Jesus Christ was, and he was the king of the universe. And when he died, he didn't even have a tomb. Most of you probably have a place to be buried, or if you don't have one, you can get one. He didn't. If it wasn't for Joseph of Arimathea, who said he can have my tomb, he'd have laid in the streets. The king of the universe, the king of heaven, when he came down... The world rejected him. He couldn't even get a hotel room to be born in. No hospital would take him. He was born in a stable. He died with no place. In fact, all his life, in Matthew 8, 2, he says, you know what? You want to follow me? You want to come with me? You want to be one of my disciples? Well, let me tell you, pal, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests. and The Son of Man have nowhere to lay his head. Left it all. Left all of his glory left all of the majesty in the throne, left all of the royalty, and left it behind for simply you and me. Oh, do you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might become rich. Look at verse 8. The ransom of a man's life are his riches. But the poor heareth not rebuke. Oh, boy. Is this verse ever true in life? Oh, Job chapter 2 verse 4 says, Satan really says when he's in that confrontation with God over Job. He says, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. Well, you know that's true. That is so true. People hold life, especially rich people, because they don't want to let go of what they got. You know, you're poor and you, you have the Lord and you understand it and you're just, you're true riches. You understand death and dying. But boy, a rich person, somebody who are maybe not even rich but has once desires all the possessions of the world, they don't want to leave this planet. This planet is all they got. I heard a man say one time that if you're an un, for an unsaved man, this earth will be as close as you ever get to heaven. And for, a, and for a saved person, this earth will be as close as you ever get to hell. Boy, a lot of truth in that. You see, the idea of verse 8 there, the ramps of a man's life are his riches. The idea is that money will get you out of all the tight spots of life. And boy, isn't that true. This is why they don't bother kidnapping you or me. We ain't worth nothing. This is why multimillionaires have security teams and more than, the, more than the president does, and they guard them because people want to kidnap them, hold them for great ransom because the ransom of a man's life or his riches. 
I remember back, well, I don't remember, but I remember reading back in the 1930s with Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh was the first man who shuttled across the Atlantic in 1927. And afterwards, he became a world famous, Lucky Lindy. And uh, he got married, and he had a, had a little baby, and the little baby was just uh, uh, three, four or five months old, and, and uh, the baby got kidnapped. It was the greatest unbelievable thing in that time, about 33, 34, somewhere in there, Ab- 1933, 34. Absolutely the whole, the whole world was after that guy that kidnapped. And you know what he wanted? He wanted $50,000. His name was Richard Hoffman, German immigrant. And he put a note, $50,000 is what I want. And they set up a meeting and he never showed up. And later on they found that the baby he had died shortly after they take it. He killed the baby. He got the electric chair. But he targeted Lindbergh because of ransom money. You know, in World War II and the concentration camps like Auschwitz or Sobior, Dachau, those Jews, when they were taken out of the ghettos in Poland and, and Warsaw and all those places and shipped across there, they had to leave their possessions behind, their clothes, their furniture, but all of them had tons of money, jewelry, gold. And they hid that in their person or their body. And when they got to those concentration camps, you know, when they were almost starved to death or going to be put into a death place here or here, what they used is they used that money to bribe the SS guards, to use those diamonds, to use those jewels to get extra food to keep from going on this detail, to keep from going to see Dr. Mangala, who would put him in the gas chamber, and that's how they survived. In 1912, when the Titanic sank, Titanic was on a maiden voyage. There were so many rich people up there in the upper class, it was absolutely the most, it was the most prestigious thing to sail across on a maiden voyage of the Titanic. It was packed with loaded with rich people. And when that ship hit an iceberg that fateful night and it wasn't enough lifeboats for everybody and all the men had to stay back and they put the women and children on and some of the men got on, there were rich men who were billionaires and millionaires that were offering people on those lifeboats $100,000 just for them to give up their seat. No takers. No takers. I remember one time reading the story of an English queen in the 1800s. can't remember her name now, but it was on her deathbed. And she said, I'd give my whole kingdom for just one more year to live. During the Korean War, a news reporter was going around and the Marine, uh, 1st Marine Division had been cut off at the shows in the reservoir and they were getting tromped and looked like they are going to get wiped out. And a correspondent was going around, and it was Christmas Day. And he was going around interviewing these guys, trying to document where they were. And they come up to this old Marine, snow everywhere, freezing to death, eating frozen sea rations with his bayonet, trying to chip. And the guy tried to make him, tried to make him kind of light and make it like it was Christmas. And he says, hey, Jirene, he says, what would you like for Christmas this year? He never looked up, never stopped chopping. He just simply said, tomorrow. I'd like to have just tomorrow just to get through today. Nobody wants to die. In the 1920s, a gangster had offered a doctor $100,000 to prolong his life just a little longer so he could continue his sinful life. But you know, folks, there are some people you can't buy off. You realize that? 
There's some people, no matter how much money you got or how clever you are, how you think you can manipulate and buy this and buy that and get this and get that, there's some people in life you just can't buy off. But you know, you say, do you know any? No, I don't know any, but I know one for sure. I'll tell you one you can't buy off. That's the pale horse rider, Revelation chapter 6. Death. That's a death angel in Exodus chapter 12. You will not buy him off. That's the grim reaper that we all talk about in the world. You won't buy him off. With all your riches gotten by your unrighteousness, you'll never escape that man or buy him off when he comes for you. Listen, my friend, the hoofbeat of the pale horse rider called death will be heard at the threshold of every palace, every mansion, every bar room, every mud hut, every grocery store, every hospital. It'll be found in Johnson County, Jackson County, in New York, in Cleveland, in Ohio, in Guam, in Tokyo. And all the money in the world won't buy him off. No, no, no. Not at that day. The only ransom will be the ransom for your soul for all of eternity. You'll either take the ransom that Jesus Christ paid for you on the cross of Calvary, 1 Timothy 2, 6 says, that he gave his life as a ransom for all. Or you'll pay it with your own soul. Hey, listen. The ransom of a man's life or his riches. You know, JFK, the Kennedy family, was one of the most interesting families Really a dynasty to study. I mean, it, it's absolutely intriguing. The whole Kennedy dynasty was built by the father, Joe, who during the war was the American ambassador to England. But in the 30s, he was a bootlegger, heavily into politics. And every corruptible thing to make money, he was into it. And he actually built a dynasty in the 20s and the 30s and amassed great riches. All his life, he had bought his way in and out of anything that he needed. Most people don't know this, but anybody in political science world understands it. When his son, JFK, ran for president in the 60s, uh, he literally bought the election for him by all the power wheels that he paid off in his Chicago political machinery. He amassed a great fortune to keep his kids out of trouble. When Ted Kennedy was out there foreign around with some secretary and Chappaquiddick, drove her back to his place and it got both were drunk and drove off the cliff or into the, into the bay and she drowned and he swam away and he went back to his house, slept all night, never reported because the rumors was she was pregnant with his baby and he never reported it and it was a next day before they even told anybody and they went back and she was dead and she found it. He never faced one prosecution for that in any way at all. You know why? They bought everybody off everywhere. Well, John F. Kennedy was one of the biggest clowns you ever saw in your life, and you never heard about a thing. You know why? Because his daddy owned all the newspapers. Their kids were always above the law. But you know what? When old Joe Jr. was killed in World War II, when JFK took one in the head in Dallas, when Bobby got it in the head in a restaurant hotel in L.A., and when Teddy was dying of terminal cancer, that old alcoholic, fornicate, and reprobate stepping out to meet the God of eternity, not one penny of their fortune called off the pale horse rider, Revelation chapter 6. That Bible says it's appointed unto men who want to die, and after this, the judgment, and you'll not buy off that appointment. Rudyard Kipling, 
a short story writer in the early 20th century, told a group of students one time, he says, you know, men will spend a lifetime with all their money buying other men. Someday you'll meet a man that you can't buy, and then you'll know how poor you really are. Incredible statement. What a great truth in life. Some people you cannot be bought at any price. And the death angel is one of them. Now look at the last part of verse 8. But the poor heareth not rebuke. Now within our context, the poor here will be the guy who thinks he's rich, but's really poor. He has a lot of money, a lot of possessions, but in truth he's very poor. He doesn't have the true riches. And yet the verse is so true. Hey, if you'd have been in Auschwitz concentration camp when those Jews were starving to death and being sent to the gas chamber, when their little kids were being eaten alive by guard dogs and the Germans' SS troops were standing them in line and shooting them in the head and betting on how many heads the 9 millimeter would go through to win the money, if you'd have tried to tell them that they're in the predicament they're in because of the decision they made back at the crucifixion when they set out, let his blood be upon us and our people, they wouldn't have heard you. You know why? Poor doesn't hear rebuke. They don't hear it. Listen, on that Titanic, when a guy's trying to buy a boat seat, running back and forth, saying, I'll give you $50,000 for your seat, no way. I'll give you $100,000 for your seat, absolutely no way. When he was out there on a deck, hey, not 20 yards down a deck was old John Harper. And old John Harper was a Bible-believing preacher that went down with the Titanic preaching about the true riches. And that rich guy could hear every word he said. But the poor hear it not rebuke. Hey, and when they found them in the ocean, those bodies, the rich millionaires, oh, they found them in silk suits, silk gowns. One man they found with $100,000 stuffed in his pockets. They found them with their best diamonds, their best necklaces. They found them with all the possessions of this world. But you know what? It didn't call off the pale horse rider. On YouTube, you want some fun time time? Google on YouTube, strange deaths. You can see the body, you can see the survivor bodies of the Lusitania, the Titanic, all stacked out there. I mean, it's incredible. I was blown away. This guy who was a motorcycle guy on a Harley Davidson died. And he loved his motorcycle so much and loved riding so much that I ain't kidding you. The whole YouTube shows him when he's embalmed in his riding suit, straddling his hearty. Harley in a funeral home, holding onto the handlebars, and like he's riding. And all of his friends are around. And he's not a, 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 one of those biker guys from the Hells Inn. He's just a guy obsessed with his motorcycles and loved to ride. And he's sitting there with his goggles on, with his hands on. The, on the, and he, when, they, when they buried him, they put him in a, a back of a trailer, and they drove him around town for one last ride. And when they buried him, they buried him on his Harley in his riding gear down in the big old hole and buried him. (laughs) 
Now, I want to tell you something. People get some weird ideas. Riches and possessions will blind you from seeing the truth. Over there in Matthew chapter 20, verses 16 through 20, it talks a story about the rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus. Classic statement. He says, Master, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? See, always got to be something you do. So Jesus plays along with him and he says, hey, you know what? Keep the law. And he says, I've done that all of my life. Good, good boy, good job. And then he says, you lack one thing. What's that? He says, take all you have and sell it and give to the poor and then come and follow me. And the Bible says that young man went away sorrowfully. You know why? Because he had great possessions. And some of you will hear the gospel message this morning and you know in your heart you need to trust Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior and you know you're on your way to hell and if you don't do something quick, you're going to be just like that guy except you're not going to have a Harley Davidson between your legs. You're just going to be in a flat casket. Old George Whitfield one time. Old George Whitfield was a great preacher. He's called the Prince of Preachers. He started the Great Awakening in the 1700s. And he preached up there in Boston and all those areas. And one time he stayed... <coughs> He stayed with a couple while he was preaching, and they were a rich family, a rich couple, a nice couple, good, clean, moral people, but they weren't saved. And they came every night to hear him preach, you know, neither one of them got saved. And so uh, he stayed there. He thanked them when he left and went on his way, and the wife went up to the room where he stayed. And it was a cold winter day, and the windows were frosted. And old, John, and old, and old Whitfield had taken his thumb and wrote in the frost of that window, Yet thou lackest one thing. With all the preaching that week and all that they had heard, when that woman come up and saw that on the deal, she fell on her knees. The man came up thinking something was wrong. He saw it. He, both of them trusted Christ, their own personal Savior. See, you can have all your righteousness. You can have all your things. You can have everything in your life. And your life may be good or your life may be a tragedy this morning. But I'll tell you something. Yet thou lackest one thing. You lack one thing. And that true is so true in our own lives. It's true of churches and pastors. The modern 20, 21st century megachurch, the church of Laodicea, they actually think that the bigger and the better they are with the more possessions of things, that the more spiritual they are. And they would never take advice from you or from me because to them, bigger is sure sign of God's blessing. They'd say, well, you know, you're just jealous of what we have and you don't have. No, not at all. Hey, listen, I wouldn't trade what I got with that book for what you don't have without it for all the gold in the world. Your big buildings, your huge crowds are nothing at the judgment seat of Christ. And anytime you want to make that comparison one-on-one, just let me know, little man. You want to feel froggy, you can leap this way, and we'll sit down and open up the book and find out who got what from where. It's just that simple. You got your great possessions, I got a great book. You got your unrighteous mammon, I got the true riches. Just that simple. Did you ever notice how the world always wants to go along with the Bible even when they don't believe the Bible? I told you a couple weeks ago about in Chicago at the doomsday clock. How that the unsaved world knows that some impending disaster is going to hit this earth. And they've got a doomsday clock that was started back in the 40s. And on that doomsday clock in Chicago, it unsaved people are telling the world 
that the world, if the world is over at, at 12 midnight, we're three minutes to 12. They know something's going to happen. Don't know what it is. I do. I do. So in 1947, when the first UFO, show, uh, UFO shows up, there have been 10 million UFO movies all coming down through there, all getting you ready for what's coming. And they have no clue. I do. Ever see how in the last five years or so, the zombie movies have really taken over? I'm not complaining. <laughs> you got The Walking Dead. You got The Day of the Dead. You got the dawn of the dead. You got the dead between the day and the dawn, somewhere in twilight dead. You got the night of the living dead. Somebody is laying out the tribulation period and not even knowing what's going on of what's coming down the line. Did you ever notice this? I'm telling you, I know one thing about life on planet Earth that you may not know or understand or grasp, and that is that everything in this world has to run by that book. And so it doesn't get very obvious. The devil smooths it all over and counterfeits it, that common folk just see it and think it's part of life, when in reality, it's part of the book. Last three or four years, ever notice how reality TV shows have now come on? When I grew up, there was no reality TV. You had to leave it to Beaver. The Osmond family, not the one you're thinking of, the Ozzie and Harriet. You had the, you know, Father Knows Best. You had the Lone Ranger. There was no fornicating and kissing. The only thing the, the Lone Ranger ever kissed was his horse. <laughs> but it's all changed now. In the last three or four years, it's all shifted to now reality TV. Reality TV being no script, so to speak, no made-up stuff. Take a family, Duck Dynasty. Take this group over here. Take this. Go in and film their real-life scenarios. And people just love it. I mean, people just think that's the greatest thing in the world now that you can actually see a reality TV that's supposed to be really about the reality of life. And I'm telling you something. The world does it because... The Bible's teaching very clearly that the greatest reality TV show that's ever going to hit this planet for the child of God is going to be the judgment seat of Christ. And if you're here this morning unsaved, it's going to be the great white throne judgment. Those are two realities that the whole world sees coming, don't know what to do with it, so puts it in some kind of folksy form that everybody loves it, but everybody doesn't see the real reality. Oh, that Bible's so true. That Bible so true. It is absolutely so true that the righteous keepeth him that is upright in the way, but wickedness overthroweth the sinner. There is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. There is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. The ransom of a man's life or his riches, but the poor hear it not rebuke. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Now let me ask you a question.